0: decided to um, welcome my brother-in-law, who is uh, very hectic at the moment because he's he's doing a one-man play and musical. No, he's not actually. He's he's written and I, I can't. I, I don't know, but he's involved in this incredible musical about um, living with dementia, and it's it was performed at the at the Fringe. And it is now being performed in Sydney and it's gotten bigger than Ben-Hur. They've added stuff and got a band and it's just incredible. But that is just about to happen in a couple of weeks. And then he's moving to Scotland for a long time. His wife is over there. He's been, he's been a wifeless for four months, five months, five months. So he's, you know, a poor man living without a, a wife, dreadful. And if you know my my um, sister, I'm sure that um, um, she looks after him to the nth degree. Cooks and cleans and panders to his every whim. You know, my sister hardly cooks. He's the cook. So I'm very envious. Anyway, I'm not going to w- 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 waffle on anymore. Duncan, Dr. Duncan McKellar.
1: Um, really... We can just go home now after all of that. It was just <laughs> ridiculous. Um, so, firstly, thank you very much for inviting me along today. I, I am in, uh, look, I have in my family, um, there's my wife, obviously, she's in Scotland, and then we have three girls. So, I'm very familiar to being with, with being surrounded by women. <laughs> But this is, you know, this is this is taking it to another level. So, as um, one of the few Y chromosomes in the room, I'm feeling intimidated. <laughs> but I'm also really honoured that um, that Julie said, "Look, come and come and talk to our ladies." And uh, so I'm go- look, I'm going to talk this afternoon. I like to talk. So um, if it gets too much, just shut me up. Just say we've had enough now, and you can stop. Um, but I'm going to tell you a few stories and a little bit about my life, um, a little bit about other people's lives. And as I tell you some stories, hopefully that will prompt us to think about some things that are perhaps important in the way that we live our lives. And now let's see if I can get the clicker to work. No, I can't. So. I am unexpectedly here today to talk to you about breast screen S.A. No. Uh, I'm clicking both ways here. Ah, there we go. Alrighty. Do you know, I remember really well my older brother's seventh birthday party. It became this legendary moment in my family history. And amazingly, it still gets notable mention even now, many decades later. It was back in the 1970s and we lived in a fairly gracious brick bungalow built between the wars in one of Adelaide's leafy eastern suburbs. It was all very nice. We had a wide grassy front lawn, and on that day it was set out with catering tables holding lots of party food and big red striped buckets of Kentucky fried chicken. The party was populated by about 15 rumbunctious boys, and they had all had way too many lollies, way too much red cordial. I've got no idea what my mother was thinking. And then they were given swords and shields that were made out of hard cardboard and sprayed metallic silver by my father. Well, it wasn't long before the front lawn degenerated into a war zone for the whole community to see looking on. And at some point, someone decided that swords and shields just weren't enough. And so they yelled, Hey, let's get the birthday boy with Kentucky fried. And so within seconds, drumsticks, bread rolls, lollies, whatever food was left over, burst over the scene like a finger-licking rain cloud. (laughs) So I was five years old, and I was very different in temperament to my brother and his friends. I was much more interested in quiet and crafty pursuits than winning wars. And I was keenly aware of that difference, and I was completely terrified. So I retreated to the veranda where my much-loved maternal grandmother pulled me onto her lap into safety and solace, quietly whispering, I think we'll stay right away from those boys at the moment. I recall both of my parents leaping into action to contain this ruckus. There we go. It's widely known that grandparents and grandchildren can have this special bond. Unfettered by the responsibilities that colour the dynamic between parents and children, there's this possibility that grandparents and grandchildren can engage with fewer expectations of compliance, cooperation and achievement such that they can simply be with each other. I had that comfortable kind of knowing without words relationship with my grandmother. You know, sometimes when I step back into the memory of that moment, it's almost like I can convince myself that I can still feel her and smell her softness and her warmth. Connection and comfort were much more influential in my relationship with my grandmother than were her cognition or capacity. And to start with, I had little awareness of the early stages of memory change that were happening for her and how that limited the things that she was able to do. For a while, I was blissfully ignorant of the fact that she did not babysit us by herself, but only with my grandfather present. I didn't understand the conversations that adults in the family were having about what appeared to be happening to her. When I was a bit older, I learnt about my grandmother's story from my mother, she had been the eldest of three daughters born into a middle-class South Australian family at the end of the 19th century. Her family owned a successful sports store in Adelaide City and a rambling stone house in the Adelaide foothills. My grandmother and her sisters all attended St Peter's Collegiate Girls School where they were provided a quality education by Anglican nuns at a time when many young women's expectations remain constrained by the need to marry and raise the next generation. My grandmother's story reflected courage and quiet determination. After finishing school, she defied her father's directive that she should abstain from further education and employment and should prepare herself for marriage. No daughter of mine needs to work, he had allegedly said. My mother proudly recounted the story of how my grandmother stood up to him and declared her intention to train as a teacher, which she did, becoming the very first woman in my family to complete tertiary education. She worked as a Montessori preschool teacher, which remarkably made her something of a radical in her day. Her self-determination as a young woman became another defining plot point in our family story. Her daughters, granddaughters, great-granddaughters have taken, been inspired to take progressively further ground in every generation as women convinced of their right to live and work without limitation. I'm very grateful to have this knowledge of my grandmother's story and strength and it makes me immeasurably proud of her. My mother also told me the story of how, when we moved from Australia to live in Oxford in the UK for a time, my grandmother, for whom memory was becoming increasingly imprecise, experienced distress. Confused by the loss of the grandchildren she loved and unable to hold on to my grandfather's reassurances that we would indeed return from the UK, she would repeatedly ask to go to our house in Adelaide, saying, I have to look after the boys. We did come back, and I reconnected with my grandmother. And By that time, the threads of adult commentary regarding the changes occurring for her had sort of come together. Nan has senile dementia, I was told. I didn't fully understand what that meant, of course, but the sense of it redefined her identity. It placed her in a category of different. And unintentionally ignorantly, senile dementia, that terminology threatened her value and it was my first exposure to the powerful impact of ageism and the marginalisation of people with dementia expressed through the inherent attitude and language of othering older people. So othering (coughs) is this fundamental concept. It accounts for differences between powerful groups and less powerful groups. The in-groups and the out-groups, defined against all sorts of different characteristics. It's important in all cultures and all communities. It's an important thing and it's something we should think about. Of course, unbeknownst to me at the time, I was already with the impact of actually being othered because I had experienced the daily rigours of uh, a primary schoolyard where differences deemed unacceptable by some were translated into repeated moments of bullying. I was, I'm sad to say, a particularly unathletic child. Had my life depended on my ability to throw a ball or lob a rock, I would have died at approximately the age of eight. (laughs) When I was in grade three, this is a sad story, when I was in grade three, the PE teacher, Mr. Brown, unceremoniously gave up on me. Our task was we had to throw a tennis ball over a soccer goal. Everybody had had their go. And after a few unsuccessful very uncoordinated attempts, he grabbed the ball from me and chucked it on my behalf simply so he could pack up and everyone could go home. (laughs) I was that child who was always last at the selection of sports teams with the two captains arguing over why they should not have to tolerate (laughs) the liability of picking me. You have him. No, you have him. My mother, bless her, wonderful woman, she would console me after school and try to convince me of the age-old wisdom regarding sticks and stones, bones and names. Even then, I knew this was rubbish. (laughs) Of course names can hurt me, I said to myself as I buried the psychological trauma under a defensive stance towards my peers, pretending that what happened didn't make me somehow feel a bit less than human. Now, I tell you this story not to make you feel sorry for me, although thank you if you do. (laughs) I tell you this story because I know that I'm not the only person in this room today who's experienced the excruciating shame of moments like that, about all sorts of things in life. And whilst I was living through my early introduction to being othered, I had no concept that this kind of experience would continue to occur throughout the lifespan, nor that it was the ubiquitous experience of all manner of individuals and communities. I was yet to understand that this process of othering underpinned a plague of social, political disempowerment, inequality, around lines of race, gender, age, faith, politics, culture, that had characterised human history. Oh, there's my bullying shot. This is a woman called Simone de Beauvoir. Controversial figure, she was a French, a very famous and great French feminist philosopher and writer. And she wrote a lot about this phenomenon of othering, providing it as a foundation for her arguments regarding the experience of women, but also regarding her arguments about the experience of older people. She wrote, no group ever sets itself up as the one without at once setting up the other against itself. She explained further, she said, if three travellers chance to occupy the same compartment on a train, that's enough to make vaguely hostile others of all the other passengers on the train. In small town eyes, all persons who don't belong to the village are strangers and are somehow a little bit suspect. To the native of a country, all who inhabit the other countries are foreigners. And over and over and over again in the world, we find people that look and sound and feel like us and then we find people who are a bit different to us and we make them somehow other and put them away. There's this sociologist called Zygmunt Bauman, what a fancy name, and he wrote this very dense and challenging book called Modernity and Ambivalence, very highfaluting. But in there, he talks about this same phenomena and he captures it quite beautifully in poetic language. He says, abnormality is the other of normality. Illness is the other of health. Barbarity is the other of civilization. Animal is the other of human. Woman is the other of man. Stranger is the other of native. Enemy is the other of friend. Them is the other of us. You know, wherever we go, we, could, we, we can find these kinds of contrasts. If you go into a hospital or a healthcare setting, patient is the other of practitioner or healthcare provider. Old is the other of young. We could add to this, this list of Balmans so many times. As Simone de Beauvoir pointed out, this happens so easily, we all do it without even realising it. Matthew Rice was a consultant with the English health charity, The King's Fund, and he reflected on this idea of unconscious biases impacting our relationships and work lives. He described how our brains are wired to instinctively categorise other people based on both visible and invisible criteria. He said, once in a group, we unconsciously assign that person good or bad characteristics, And the evidence shows that we are much more likely to attribute positive characteristics to people who are similar to us and share the same values. We all do it no matter how unbiased we think we are. This bias affects our interactions with colleagues and other people all over the place. So what are we to do about this? How do we respond to this tendency that we all have to work out who's like us, who's not like us, and to create these differences between us? Well, I think it comes down to thinking about people's stories. At least that's one of the things that can be a key to us changing this power relationship that happens between people. There's this surgeon and writer called Atul Gawande, and he wrote a wonderful book called Being Mortal, where he powerfully captured the importance of stories in making meaning in life. He wrote these great words. He said, In the end, people don't view their life as merely the average of all its moments, which, after all, is mostly nothing much plus some sleep. For human beings, life is meaningful because it is a story. A story has a sense of a whole and its arc is determined by the significant moments, the ones where something actually happens. So as we come alongside and are with people, our task is to listen, to observe and to connect with those significant moments that shape the arc of their stories. The peaks of joy and valleys of misery, as Gawande put them. Just like us, people are seeking to recognise how their story works out as a whole. I think about this quite a lot and um, what helps me is I'm thinking about what does this mean for my life and for my work and I work in a, a uh, a job that requires me to listen to a lot of people's stories and to constantly be engaging with what's happening in people's lives and often at, at those, in those valleys of misery is when I actually end up sort of engaging with people. And thinking about this idea of being story-informed is a way that it helps me make sense of this work in my own life. And it's built around this central idea of listening and honouring a person's story. And I think of this idea of being story informed as an approach that has these cornerstones of empathy, compassion and equality. It provides supportive attitudes of curiosity, humility and non-judgment, and then guides actions of listening, imagining and learning. I'm just gonna touch on those just a little bit deeper for a few minutes. As an approach, being story informed builds on empathy, compassion and equality. I think it's really important to think about what is empathy and it's important to not be confused with another word which is sympathy. There's Helen Reese, is a psychiatrist and neuroscientist who does a lot of research around empathy and she looks particularly at people in in healthcare and thinks about what makes the difference between healthcare workers who uh, have empathy and those who don't. And she points out that sympathy can be described as the feeling you have when you look out your window and you see someone shivering in the cold rain. You feel bad for them. Empathy, though, is when you look out the window and you see that person in the cold rain and then you then through your imagination, it's almost as if you go and stand next to them in the cold rain so that you actually have a sense, you can feel some of their suffering and, and their distress as if it were your own. In attending to and being informed by somebody else's story, we can consider what it might be like to walk in their shoes. And in this way, empathy provides motivation behind compassion. And compassion really is the, is the ability to both see and feel and then be motivated to do something about somebody else's suffering. Empathy goes hand in hand with this idea of equality. In simple terms, equality means the state of being equal. And yet, if we think about it, the world is obviously not an equal place. It's a distressingly unequal place. There's different wealth. There's different um, levels of power. There's different abilities. There's different levels of health. and, And there's such diversity in people's experience across the world. And yet the reality is actually, and if we, if we want to put a theological lens over this and we want to think about what's, you know, what does God think about this, in actual fact, we are all of equal value and everybody has, should have the same right to make the most of their lives and their talents. No one should have poorer life chances because of the way that they were born, where they come from, what they believe or whether they live with a disability or not. And one of the good things though about empathy compassion and equality is that they tend to be contagious and if we live into those if we make them part of our lives they tend to actually spread to other people as we pay things forward then of course there's the attitudes of story being story informed which are curiosity humility and non-judgment curiosity reflects a desire to learn more about something or someone It's crucial in overcoming our unconscious biases. If we want to overcome those unconscious biases that we talked about before, it's important to actually come to relationships with a curiosity that asks why and what's happened in your life, rather than quickly jumping to to judgement and writing people off. Curiosity prompts us to ask questions and to seek to understand without needing to agree, and it encourages us to probe deeper. It's difficult to do, though. I know I'm not a particularly curious person and it's something that I've really had to think about to actually withhold my judgment and to be more curious about what's what's actually happening in that person's life. Humility reflects our commitment to equality and serving others, being honest and circumspect in our appraisal of ourselves. And then there's withholding judgment, Most of us don't realise that we're passing judgment on people, and yet we do it all the time. Our colleagues who disappoint us, people with different opinions, those on the other side of politics, sometimes it's difficult not to judge them. People who look or behave differently to us, who make us feel uncomfortable. There's this wonderful author, Lacey Borgo, who made a powerful statement it's much easier to judge someone from a distance, but it's very difficult to judge from up close. And that's why relationships are so important. That's why listening to people's stories, being curious, giving them some credit and some space and some time makes such a difference because it enables us to come up close and to discover that actually we're not really that different. Being story informed also requires action. It prompts the honing of our skills in listening, imagining and learning. So often we listen in order to be right or to reply rather than attentively listening to learn, being quiet rather than planning what we'll say next. How many of you do that? I know I do it all the time. I'm listening. I'm not really listening. I'm planning my next words. And so many of us love to we listen so that we can be right with the next thing we say. But in actual fact, it's quite a discipline to change the way that we listen in order to just listen with that true sense of curiosity. Dennis McDermott was an acclaimed Australian poet and a professor. He was a Koori man from Gomroy country in New South Wales. And he referred to Aboriginal traditions of silence of nonverbal communication, reflection, and he called this deep listening as a way, and proposed this as a way of de othering, of stopping us from separating people out. And he said that it's imp- important to approach this deep listening as a way of listening and holding a whole person's story without pulling away. He said, if we're deep listening to someone, we are showing that we are not thrown by their fear their shame, their guilt, their brokenness. We can sit and hold and listen to the whole thing. Then there's imagining. Imagining is not merely an idle state of mind or some sort of daydreaming. It's an active process. that's essential in empathically hearing a person's story. It's the as-if component of going out with deliberation and placing ourselves beside that person in the cold rain and understanding what, what they're actually going through. In someone else's experience, we, we, as we come alongside them and we hear their whole story, we're able to imagine what life might be like for them. Imagining is also part of innovating and creating and envisioning future possibilities. Imagination is actually vital to inspiring hope because it's the ability to see a different future from the one that's in front of us right now. And then finally, there's learning, which is an indispensable active part of living and working in a story informed way. It's an active process because it requires commitment and fortitude and persistence. It requires us to be courageous enough to look at ourselves and think and ask ourselves what is it that I might need to change in my own life to address my own deficits? Back in 2017, I went through a very significant challenge and change experience of my own that really changed my whole life. I was, um, you know, as as Julie mentioned at the beginning, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a a psychiatrist who specialises in the care of older people. And back in 2017, I became involved with this um, review and then this report in South Australia that was published as the Oakton Report. And some of you might remember that time back then. It was a really huge news story. It was the biggest South Australian news story of 2017. And it led to a Royal Commission, the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. It actually was the the big news story that brought down Jay Weatherall's government um, in the the following election in 2018. It 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 was a really big impact time. And, uh, and I was one of the panel members that had gone into the Oakton Older Persons Mental Health Service, which was a state-run specialist older persons mental health service, um, like a, like a, an aged care facility, but that it looked after specifically looked after people who had complex presentations of dementia or a complex mental illness in older age, and it was an infamous service that weirdly everybody knew it was terrible but for some reason kind of nobody knew it was terrible. Anyway, I became part of a team that went in to look at this this place and we wrote this report called the Oakden Report, we published it. Um, When we wrote that report we didn't really realise the sort of impact that it would have uh, on the community, on politics, on the the future of Australian aged care but um, it really changed my life. Listening to the stories that I was exposed to from hundreds of families that had really suffered as a result of the way that care was delivered in this particular facility, it was traumatizing, but it was profoundly transformative for me. And after I'd been part of that team that, that wrote the report, I stayed on with that service, I actually, left my previous job and went and, and worked in uh, the north of Adelaide where that service was, uh, was situated in order to take a role in the reform process of trying to change things to make them better and that was also a gruelling and life-changing time at the centre of this significant public and political scandal. And there was one experience perhaps more than any other that brought home for me the tragedy of losing sight of a person's story that in a such a way that it led to their othering and their dehumanisation. We'd moved everyone out of the Oakton Older Persons Mental Health Service. We'd been able to relocate many of those residents to mainstream residential aged care facilities. But then there was this small group of people who still presented with complex symptoms and situations that meant that they they really couldn't be accommodated uh, sustainably in aged care. And we set up a new service for them, a little place called Northgate House, and we had this just 16 residents there that all had really complex needs. And uh, we then started decommissioning the Oakton campus, which was this—you know—it's this campus in uh, off Foster's Road in Oakton, and uh, it had been there for for you know several decades, and it was filled with junk and and institutional clutter that just mounted up in every cupboard and corner. But there was one of these residents who really impacted me. Her name was Lily, and she was this tiny little Hungarian woman and she was one of the first residents that we moved from Oakton over into Northgate House where we were really trying hard to deliver care in a way that was dignified and respectful and that understood the person and, and gave honour to them, their life and their story. Lily was tiny but she was fiery. Despite living with dementia she would, she would just emerge with kind of confidence and, and zest that would come through in her efforts to communicate and connect. Lily had lived through difficult times in the Second World War in Europe. She'd experienced the deprivation and the trauma of living under German occupation. And then she'd been there in Hungary in the subsequent ascendancy of Soviet control over Hungary. Uncertainty and anxiety had been dominant themes during this period of her life and during a challenging journey of migration to establish a new life on the other side of the world. It shouldn't have been a surprise when the consequences of trauma and anxiety came to the surface as part of her experience of living with dementia. Lily, when I knew her, had lost most of her English language skills and even her efforts to communicate in her native Hungarian through an interpreter were mostly incoherent. So she struggled with people providing her personal care when she needed to be supported with continents and things like that. And and when confronted by these moments of exposure and discomfort, she would respond with efforts to defend herself. People would say that she was aggressive, but in actual fact she was just expressing her trauma and her anxiety. Residential aged care providers had been unable to manage these challenging moments. And as a consequence, Lily had first found herself living at Oakton and then was amongst those very first residents at Northgate House. A short while after her transfer to Northgate House, Lily took a turn for the worse. Her physical health rapidly deteriorated and it became evident that she was reaching the end of her life. And then, after a brief period where we really worked hard to deliver her quality palliative care with support from our local community palliative care team and the nursing staff from Northgate House really Working hard, she, she crossed over beyond life and passed away. Her family were concurrently grief-stricken but also relieved that this difficult journey for them was over. My one frustration, however, was that during this period where we were trying to care for Lily at the end of her life, we had no personal, really no personal belongings of hers, nothing that really honoured her life story and that would have made for a truly personalised environment. Somehow we didn't have them, her family didn't have them, they'd, they'd just disappeared somewhere. And then it was the day after, the very day after Lily's death that I went back to the Oakton campus And for whatever reason I opened the door to one of the many rooms that I had never been in before. It was an old patient bay that had been converted to a storeroom. Industrial shelves lined the walls and they were heavily laden with boxes and suitcases. Junk had been jammed into this room, broken wheelchairs, tables, beds, trunks, It was hard to make a path through it all, and I distinctly remember pushing past an old mattress as I noticed that it had old fecal matter caked and dried along its surface, and I just remember cringing. And then I opened the very first suitcase that I came to, and I caught my breath. It was Lily's. She had died the night before cared for as best we could, but without being surrounded by these precious details of her life. And now I found myself holding black and white photographs of Lily and this insight into her story. There was Lily on her wedding day, looking joyful next to her new husband. There was a photograph of Lily holding her baby and others with her family as they grew up and became increasingly Australian. There were personal papers under which I found items of jewellery, a pendant on a chain, a small ring, the metal dimmed by time and dirt but with a modest gleaming gemstone. I suspect it was her engagement ring. Looking up at me from within this suitcase was a woman who had lived and loved, had danced and wept. For a moment I stood and held the items in silence, staring at them while the room seemed to swirl around me. I struggled to process the fact that these items, which told the story of Lily's life and relationships, had been boxed up in a cupboard filled with broken equipment and dirty mattresses, that they had not enriched her environment nor had communicated who she was to the people providing her care as she died had made that decision that they should be taken away and put here? What did this say about how she was seen and known? I surveyed the room and I realised that there were other suitcases and boxes similarly filled with clothing, photographs and personal items. Pieces of the lives and memories of people whose journeys had ended at Oakden piled up on these shelves. The emotional impact of the preceding months contracted into that moment for me, standing in this storeroom, holding a ring and a photograph of a wedding, precious moments of life overlooked and left behind. I cried. I grieved for Lily, I grieved for us all and how we had failed. We'd allowed a system to lose a person and box up their story almost as if they had never lived. You know, my experience of finding the boxed lives of these former residents is not unique. In their moving book, called The Lives They Left Behind, Darby Penny and Peter Stastny, documented the stories of just 10 lifelong residents of the Willard State Psychiatric Hospital in New York, following the discovery of 427 suitcases interred in the hospital attic. The suitcases were discovered by two local women and a visiting historian during the time that that institution was decommissioned and demolished in the 1980s and 1990s. You know, historically, it is a feature of the experience of people with mental illness, with disability, with dementia, that they are pathologised. What that means is that they are seen primarily through the lens of their diagnosis of their illness. In this way, they are marginalised, dehumanised, and they are made other. Penny and Stastny described what motivated them to write their book. They lamented that these individuals never had the chance to tell their stories outside of the confines of psychiatry. They wrote of the sundering or the pulling apart of who they were as people from whom they became as mental patients. When I was confronted by this chaotic library of Oakton residents' lives, I encountered exactly the same phenomena. I called the CEO and explained what I had found. She cried. We made an inventory of all the items that were made and then we had this process of what's called open disclosure, where we went to the families and we explained what we'd found. Most of the belongings were returned to families, with some donated to charity at their request. And then as a service, we move forward with this renewed commitment that we wanted to remember the person at the centre of care. It's a fragile and easily forgotten commitment, not least in the face of financial pressures and service flow issues. And You know, I just think that it's so important that we all recognise and resist our tendency towards othering and pathologising people. Back in 2020, after the first year of the pandemic, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth delivered her annual Christmas message. And she applauded the determination of so many communities of faith and culture to continue celebrating despite the limitations imposed by the global pandemic. She acknowledged the many, many losses felt by so many people in the wake of COVID-19 and honoured the selflessness of healthcare workers the world round who continued to labour under extreme duress. Her Majesty made reference to a wonderful parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan from the Gospel of Luke. It's a well-known story of a man beaten and robbed, left to die by the roadside. His plight was witnessed by people from his own community, caught up in their own needs and issues as they walked past his mucky destitution, looking away. I think that perhaps we should not judge them too harshly. I suppose we don't actually know their stories. And the reality is that at some time or another, most of us have been those people who have looked away. The point in this story is, of course, that there was that this man was saved by a stranger from a culture that was considered outcast and unacceptable. He was someone who was familiar with the experience of being othered and dehumanised. But when confronted by the injured man, the stranger saw only another human in need. And using his own resources, he ensured the man's rescue and recovery. Her Majesty pointed out that she repeatedly witnessed such kindness from people and she claimed that this is evidence of the capability of people to act with compassion, commonality and care. A while back, I came across a couple in their 90s, Stefan and Mara. Their situation had similarities to Lily's story and it was heartbreaking. They had been together for over 70 years, having been sweethearts from childhood. Their families had been neighbours in Romania in the 1930s and they'd endured hardship and trauma. Marrying in their late teens, they had escaped war-torn Europe for a new life in Australia. They had a daughter, Sophia and they had worked hard and built a wholesome life together. Sophia had grown up as a first-generation Aussie with new opportunities and expectations. She'd married, and Stefan and Mara delighted in their grandchildren. As the years passed, Stefan and Mara had both taken steps towards the frailty that comes to everyone in the end. Mara was diagnosed with dementia. She progressively forgot more, and moved less. Circumstances conspired and they could no longer live in their small home and they were both placed in a residential aged care facility. After 70 years in constant companionship, their concessional status, meaning that they didn't have a lot of resources, meant that they couldn't access a couple's room. So they were accommodated on different floors. Mara was lost and alone unable to make sense of where Stefan had gone, and Stefan was devastated. Sophia began to advocate, seeking to ease her parents' distress. She appealed to the facility. Our couple's rooms are all filled, she was told. There's nothing we can do. Her advocacy turned to agitation. She argued desperately for their mental health. In 70 years, they've never been apart, she pleaded. They're becoming depressed. You can't let this happen to them. Sophia wrote a letter to her local member of parliament. The local member wrote a letter to the federal minister. The minister wrote back, expressing sympathy, but explaining that he could do nothing to help. It was up to the aged care provider. The sympathy sounded hollow the local member forwarded the letter to Sophia and coming from the other side of politics, he was quick to point out that this was both disappointing and typical of such a government. He then closed the case with a similarly hollow thud. When Stefan and Mara's story crossed my path, I was outraged and saddened my first thought was that we could surely do better at finding a solution to what seemed a relatively simple problem. It is the business of aged care providers to hold people's stories with dignity and honour. How could they not see that it was not okay to tell a couple in the last days of their lives after 70 years of togetherness that they must suddenly adapt to a life of separation – There was a disturbing absence of story-informed kindness and care. Sophia reached out to the local aged rights advocacy service, persisting with her very reasonable request that her parents be brought together. She knew that in the deep hours of the night, there was the only soothing balm, for their shared distress was each other's presence. But the weight of grief... Shrouded in the shadowy veil of confusion and unfamiliar surroundings, took its toll on Mara. She lost interest in being out of bed, then stopped eating, and a short while later, with the matter still unresolved, she died. Stefan remained brokenhearted. And then, a week later, a picture of another couple, Margaret and Derek, appeared on my social media newsfeed. Both 91, married for 70 years, sweethearts since the age of 14. It was a bit like a parallel universe. Margaret and Derek had been admitted to separate NHS hospitals in the UK with their own complications of frailty. In hospital, Margaret contracted covid The doctors and nurses quickly recognised the limitations confronting them and in the face of the intensity and widespread trauma carried by the NHS staff, compassion prevailed. Derek was moved from one hospital to another so that he could be with his wife. Derek subsequently caught COVID too. To be honest, his daughter reported, he probably wouldn't have had it any other way. There was no way that he wasn't going to go and see her. And after 91 years of living, 70 years of love and companionship, five children, 11 grandchildren and four great-grandchildren, Derek and Margaret, slipped beyond life within three days of each other. Their last photograph... Their last photograph, taken in hospital by their daughter, is poignant, beautiful... heart-wrenching. With hospital beds jammed up against each other, Derek and Margaret can be seen reaching out to one another, their four hands intertwined. It is clear that Margaret, weakened and frail with exhaustion, drew comfort from Derek's touch. Derek's face, overwhelmed by emotion, welled up with love and tears, is the focus of the image. Amid the pandemic that battered the NHS, the story of these two people was honoured the foundations of empathy and compassion remained intact. By being story-informed in work, relationships and life, we see beyond the immediate and can consider a whole narrative with its twists and turns, traumas and triumphs. We recognise that at the end of the day, what everyone craves is human connection. We need each other. We need to know that we are valued and that our lives have meaning. At the centre of everyone's story is a need for compassion, hope and humanity, for love. This is simple and it's true. And every one of us can bring something of this to our part of the world every day. Thank you.
0: I'm not sure what to say. Thank you, Duncan, for that. (laughs) I'm pathetic at the best of (laughs) times. Such a beautiful photo. (sighs) It's good to be reminded isn't it cuz we just get caught up in life and it's funny cuz Ben's been talking about how important each othering is loving each other and sometimes it's hard when you're tired and you're caught up with whatever like caught up in whatever's going on in your own life and you come out to functions or you catch up with family or you go to work, it's hard to look beyond what you're battling with. But even that picture is a really good reminder that there's a story in every person that if we just understood or walked in their shoes, we would probably respond a bit differently. So... um, I'm not quite sure what to say, but um, I don't. I'm not good at getting up after someone's spoken. But Duncan ha- is um, happy to answer any questions or any um, to discuss anything further. I don't know whether y- you want to do it from here or whether, yeah. So, I- sing a song. Or sing a song. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's not church. <laughs>